right, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Calvary the Hill. Hey, Chris. <laughs> um, good. Let's, let's dive into the Word. Uh, if you have a Bible, pull it out. If you don't, uh, there should be a Bible that you can grab uh, pretty close to you. Is that John? Ate a lot? And Melissa? Hi. These guys are fellow Calvary uh, leaders up at uh, a Shoreline Calvary, but it's right on the border of Shoreline in Seattle called City Calvary. So, yay! Good to see you guys. Sorry to call you out like that. Um, <laughs> go ahead and pull your Bibles out. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4. And then go ahead and stand up. And uh, you can follow along as I read Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. All right, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go ahead and have a seat and we'll pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Uh, we thank you for the letter of Paul to the Philippians uh, written almost 2,000 years ago that we get to glean from as your words to us. And I pray that your spirit would do the heavy lifting this morning through your word in speaking directly to each of us as individuals, as well as us collectively as your church here in Capitol Hill. Um, we want to honor you. We want to be faithful to you. And we know that it's only by your strength and your spirit that we can do that. So we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this morning, uh, Paul is wrapping things up. Uh, we're, we're almost to the end of this thank you card. Uh, remember how this is a thank you card from Paul to the Philippians. And we've finally arrived at the part where he basically says thanks. And as, you, as we just read, he doesn't actually say thanks. But culturally speaking, he, he, he's saying thanks. You know, he's saying it was kind of you. He's saying I am rejoicing that you have given this, these things to me. And... You know, we might ask ourselves, you know, in a thank you card, usually the thanks come first. Dear Uncle 
John, thank you so much for your Christmas gift. It was awesome. Um, but here it, it comes last. And so we need to remember that most of the people that this was written to aren't sitting on their you know, living room couch reading this thank you card. They're in a group and they're hearing it. They're hearing it read over them. And so they hear the thanks last as the thing that will be ringing in their ears as they go away from the gathering. And so, but Paul, you know, as, as he does, can't help himself. You know, he uses even this thank you portion of the letter to teach and encourage them with some of the most challenging and beautiful words in the letter. You know, he's just encouraged them, last week we read, to, in, to rejoice always in the Lord, to bring all of their needs, all of their anxieties, all of their cares to God. And then the peace of God will come then. And then he encouraged them to copy his way of life. You know, he says, whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And so what is he doing now? He's basically using this thank you portion of the letter to provide an example of how to walk with God in one of the most difficult areas of life to do it. Material and financial needs. You know, when the rubber of need meets the road of the Christian life, what does that look like? You know, when we encounter financial turmoil, when, when we encounter material needs, physical needs in our lives, what does it look like to have contentment in Christ? And so Paul shows us how to walk in it. Um, and, you know, material needs, physical needs, financial needs, these things are unavoidable in life. And really, they reveal much of who we are. If you think of, you know, yourself as a, a cup of some kind of, you know, orange juice or something, you know, or say you're looking at a glass, it's, it's an opaque glass, you can't see what's inside, you'll only know what's inside if you knock it over. And material needs are like that. They, they come into our lives and they reveal what's inside. It's like the cup of our life gets spilled and then what comes out? And... You know, I can be a very different person when, you know, I'm going about my life and then all of a sudden I, I feel like I have a scarcity of resources. Oh no, do I have enough money? But the reverse is also true. You know, you've, you've heard of the stories of, of people who win the lottery and they all of a sudden become somebody they don't like. You know, mo' money, mo' problems, right? <laughs> And, you know, that's in a lot of ways true. And so there's a proverb that illustrates this. Uh, the writer says, give me neither poverty nor riches. He says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. And that's the same word as contentment. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? I've got enough. Who needs God? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. And so the writer of Proverbs sees that material needs and material wealth can be potent 
distractors, you know, potent things that either uh, reveal how much we are self-sufficient or how much or what we think of God. And so Paul wants to guide us this morning along the path of gospel contentment. You know, he'll teach us that material needs reveal these three things about us. First, how we view ourselves and what we need. What we think will be the good life. And second, how we view others. And lastly, how we view God. But if we're steeped in the truth of the gospel as as laid out in the person of Jesus Christ, material needs can reveal gospel contentment. That when the cup of your life gets spilled, it's actually contentment that's there. First, if, if material needs reveal how we view ourselves, then the gospel can show us what we truly need to have a good life. And second, if material needs reveal how we see other people, the gospel shows us how to view people unselfishly. Not as people to to take from or what people can give us, but as people made in God's image. And lastly, if material needs show us what we think of God, the gospel reminds us that God is our ultimate provider. And so first... Material needs reveal how we view ourselves. Look again at verses 10 through 13. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so notice first that Paul does what he has just recommended that they do. Rejoice in the Lord. You know, he said it back in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then here in verse 10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord. He's giving them an example. And why is he rejoicing? Because after an unknown to us length of time, this church had re-upped their commitment to him. They, they had re-upped their support of him in hardship. And we read in other letters from Paul and in the book of Acts that this church has a long history of supporting Paul. But apparently it's been a while since they had a chance to send him a care package. As Andy reminded us, back in the first century in the Roman Empire, if you're in prison, it's not like here where they give you three meals a day. You're dependent on people you know to bring you food, to bring you water, to bring you a blanket. And so you're dependent on your social uh, support system. And so this church, though, it's been a while since they were able to support him, and it could have been because they were mostly poor. In the letter, uh, the second letter of Corinthians chapter 8, we learn that the Philippian church gave to Paul's fundraising effort for the poor people in Jerusalem, and it says that they did so out of their poverty. And so 
the current delay may have been, been because they just didn't have any money to give. But now they re-upped and they provided some, some help. But notice immediately after he says, I rejoice that you, that you re-upped your concern for me. But then he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Please, please don't get me wrong. I wasn't considering myself as needing help. He, he provides a caveat. He wants them to know that his rejoicing in the Lord is not related to his getting his third meal that day. That, you know, he, he didn't even think of himself as being needy in this place. And, you know, this, as we read it, it sounds remarkably like the philosophy of Stoicism that was popular in Paul's day. And then he continues to elaborate on this rather stoic sounding understanding of his own needs. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. And that word learn the secret is to be initiated. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And, you know, the key for for these philosophers of this day was just that even keeled you know, straight-faced walking through life. The, the key concept was self-sufficiency. You know, I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. What happens to me won't change me. I'm good. That was stoicism. So we have to ask ourselves, is Paul just a stoic? You know, is he just saying, no, no highs, no lows, just straight. Well, verse 13 provides the punchline. He says, I can do all things through sheer willpower. No, that's not what he says. I can do all things, how? Through somebody else. The point of these Stoic philosophers was, you can do anything, you're fine, it's all about you. Be self-sufficient. Pull yourself up. You're fine. That wasn't how it was for Paul. He is not self-sufficient. He's Christ-sufficient. While most people around him are pursuing what they think they need for a good life, You know, Paul understands that there's only one thing that he needs for a good life. To always be with Jesus. To be walking with Jesus. And so, in his life walking with Jesus, if that looks like hunger, sign me up, Paul says. If that looks like eating well, sign me up, Paul says. In this way, material needs reveal how we view ourselves. They reveal what we think we need to be good, to be okay. If we think we need X in order to be successful, at peace, comforted, confident, secure, then when that thing is taken away, we feel failure. We feel self-pity. We feel entitlement. We feel depression. You name it. 
because that was the thing we needed to be content. But Paul, right here, all he's doing is simply walking in the way that Jesus calls every Jesus follower to walk. He laid it all out for us in the Gospel of Matthew. Go ahead and turn over there. Turn to the left to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus' grand treatise on anxiety and daily needs. Starting in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And notice first in Jesus' treatise here that these are needs, not wants. You know, he's not saying, seek first the kingdom of God and you will get a Tesla and a BMW and a Ferrari. No, he's talking about material needs. What shall we eat? That is a need. What shall we wear? That is a need. Your heavenly, it says your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. And then second, notice that material needs are thus not ignored. God is, God is not inviting you to a life of ignoring your needs. That's what the Stoics were trying to do. No, your material needs are not ignored. They are just dethroned. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Do you believe this? Do you know it experientially? You know, I recommend experimenting with this. You know, it's one thing to know these verses in your head but it's another thing to experience the reality of it. When, when you put God's kingdom first in your life, above every other thing, 
See if you don't end up experiencing the contentment and the provision that Paul and Jesus were were talking about. And so as followers of Jesus, we're followers of Jesus. He dictates what our needs are. And he cares more about your needs than you do. The gospel helps us to dethrone ourselves from the center of our universe. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us to do. He says, put God first. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because you at the center will not be a good life for you. Whatever and wherever he calls you to, he will provide all you need to be successful in the way he wants you to succeed, not in our definition. All for his kingdom and his glory. Just before Jesus went into this this treatise, he said that money and success are cruel. They are not good masters. Which is why he says you can't serve both God and money. You can't. They are at odds with one another. And so material needs, they reveal what we think we need for ourselves. But the gospel of Jesus shows us what we truly need, which is not a what, but a who. All right, so that's material needs revealing how we view ourselves. But how do material needs reveal how we view others? Look at verse 14. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And so Paul here, he returns to the subject of of expressing his gratitude to this church. And he gives a brief history of their financial partnership with him. You know, and, and these, some of these verses sound businessy. But if we look closely, it reveals how Paul views people. Even those he is receiving money from. And so material needs, they not only reveal how we view ourselves, but also how we view others. You know, this is basically the reason why I quit selling Cutco knives before I started. It's because any, any type of pyramid-based work, I just couldn't do it. Because I couldn't do it without viewing people through, can I, I wonder if I could sell this person a knife. And that's, it can be easy to fall into that, even without being a Cutco knife salesman, is viewing people through what they can give us. We can easily start to look at people through the lens of what they can do for us, what they can give to us, what they can buy from us. But that is not how Paul views these people. And we can start to see people as commodities. How can I benefit from this person? 
So how does Paul view them? You know, even when he's in prison, even when he does need help, notice all the words that give away his heart here. Right away he says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You know, that word share is closely related to the word used elsewhere in the letter for fellowship. Now, this is a, this is a joint thing happening here. Thank you for jumping in with me. So in giving to Paul, they connected with him on a deep level. And then he uses the word partnership. You know, he says, at the beginning of the gospel, this, that's talking about when he first arrived in Philippi and preached the gospel to Lydia and her household. And then when he left, they entered with him into partnership. They said, we, we see what you're doing. You're, you're God's missionary to the nations. We want, it, we want in on that. And so they enter into this partnership and it's the same word he uses back in chapter 1 when he says, I'm so thankful for the partnership that we've had together in the gospel. And then finally he says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And so he's in it for their sake. He's accepting help from them because he knows how valuable it is to, to participate in this gospel. He recognizes gospel ministry for what it is. It's a group effort. Paul is not a lone wolf. You know, he, he did have troubles. He did have needs, as we see in verse 16. You sent me help for my needs once and again. He was willing to receive help from others. And so we're not talking about a posture of being unwilling to, to get help. Because that's not where Paul's at. He's willing to get help. But he's doing it for the right reasons. You know, gospel ministry takes more than one person. And the beautiful thing is that it doesn't matter what part you're playing. It's a joy. You know, even those who aren't, you know, quote-unquote on the front lines of ministry, but are able to give, whether it's with time or with finances or prayer, all of these things are equally valuable and part of it, and a joyful part, not an obligatory part, a part that you get to play. And, and because of it, you're able to see fruit in your life. And Paul rejoices, and he doesn't rejoice in some specific amount that they provided or resources they provided, but that they got to participate. What a miracle. And when he says the fruit that increases to your credit, another translation is that increases to your account. And so he might be even referring to heavenly rewards that await those of us who get to participate in spreading the gospel. How awesome is that? It's not, not some kind of earning of salvation, earning of God's favor, but it is what Jesus was referring to in the same chapter as we read from earlier, to don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths and, and rust destroy or thieves can break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where nothing can destroy. And so Paul views his friends at Philippi not as as commodities, not as people to extract from, but as partners in the gospel, worth investing in and fanning their gifts and their participation into flame. And so notice that this, this revelation of how we view others that comes through material needs, that this view of people as, as equal, as partners, comes only after we have embraced Jesus as our one true need. That when we are confident of receiving all we need from God, you know, we no longer need to look at people through this lens of, what can they get me? You know, how can I, how can I man- maneuver this relationship for my benefit? When you know that all your needs come from God, you won't need to do that. And so you can see others through this gospel lens. God is our provider. And that's where Paul finishes here. Material needs reveal, yeah, how we view ourselves, how we view others, but also, and most importantly, how we view God. Look at verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul acknowledges their gift. And how does he acknowledge it? He acknowledges it as just as spiritual as his ministry. Look at what he calls it. Their gift. It's a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar because that is imagery that we see over and over. Of course, in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, but in the New Testament. You know, Paul uses Christ's sacrifice and says, that was a fragrant offering acceptable to God in Ephesians chapter 5. And then in Romans 12, he says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your acceptable service. And so Paul elevates this gift as something so pleasing to God. They couldn't be there with him. They couldn't be in chains alongside him. And so they sent a simple care package. You know, that's all they could do. But guess what? God loved it. God loved it. This simple yet sacrificial display of love for Paul went up as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. How cool is that? That when we love one another sacrificially, God goes, that is amazing. That smells good good. I love that. That's the God we serve. But of course, Paul, you know, he's in prison. He's poor as can be. He cannot reciprocate, at least not financially, in any way, anytime soon. So what does he do? He basically writes them an IOU here. 
He says, my God will supply all your needs. He writes them an IOU with God as the actor. He puts God's name on it. And so material needs, you know, they, they don't just reveal what we think the good life should be for ourselves. They don't just reveal how we see others. They reveal how we view God. It's, it's almost hard to believe that this, these words were written by someone so poor and in prison who had suffered brutally. You know, I'm a relatively stable, middle-class, 21st century American Christian, and I have trouble viewing God like this. This is someone who's, who's experienced such hardship, and yet he can pen these words. Let alone when I go through the occasional financial turbulence of life. Yet this is the God presented to us in Scripture. This is the God of the Gospel. The God who provides over and abundantly for us His children. Look at His IOU. It's robust. You know, first He starts it off, My God. You know, He, 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 he knows this God so personally that He's like, you know, I can vouch for him, guys. He, he is truly good. He is truly trustworthy. And y'all, he's rich. My God is rich. Paul has experienced this. And so he says, my God will supply what? Every need of yours. And guess what? Every means every here. Every means every. Every need that God knows that you have, he will supply. Wow. And finally, where will God get the resources to do this? Paul says, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So yeah, God is rich. He, as they say, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yes, indeed. But in Christ, he now owns you. He writes, Paul writes elsewhere to the Corinthians that Christ purchased you, how? By his blood. That, you know, before Christ came and did his work of dying and raising he paid it all, we were under a different king. We were under someone else's jurisdiction. But he paid it all. He purchased us. And so God owns us now. He ransomed us. But the other thing that God owns is life. He owns life. As in, he defeated death. He literally defeated death. He's rich. Death is no longer something we deal with in an ultimate sense. Physical death is not the end of our story. When we view ourselves 
according to what we need for the good life, usually that's with 80-ish years in our minds. We don't have to worry about 80-ish years anymore. We're talking about eternity. That's the good life. And God provides all we need to experience that life. So yeah, God does provide money. He does provide rent. He does provide shelter, and he loves to do that. But he provides so much more. His resources are beyond money. He provides healing. He provides healing from trauma. He provides healing from long-standing hurts and pains, long-standing brokenness that's to do with relational stuff from, from all the way back. Fulfilling work he provides, calling, peace with him, peace with others, a new and immortal body one day. And oh yeah, complete and total forgiveness from sin. None of these things money can buy. None of them. So it's no wonder that Paul just randomly bursts into song. He says, yeah, my God's going to provide all your needs. He's got the, the resources to do it. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And notice he goes from my God to our God. So it's no wonder that he bursts into a benediction because God is a good Father. We are his beloved children. Therefore, we can actually have gospel contentment. So when we encounter material needs, and we will, I guarantee it, tough ones too, think of it as an opportunity to stretch these muscles, to, to, practice, to practice this. Gospel contentment doesn't come overnight. It comes through slowly but surely understanding that, yes, indeed, God is good. Yes, indeed, he provides what I need. These muscles are worth stretching. The muscle of prayer and desperation for him. The muscle of knowing what we truly need for a good life. Which is a life of walking hand in hand with Jesus Christ. That's what a good life looks like. The muscle of viewing people as partners, not through what they can give us. The muscle of remembering and declaring the goodness of God. And then over time, when the cup of our life spills over because of material needs, what then can spill out is true contentment. Oh, wow, I'm in need right now. But whoa, I have all I need because I have who I need. Amen. And together we can be the faithful people of God. You know, not just as individuals when we face our own needs and issues and cares, but as a church, as the local church here in Capitol Hill, we can together demonstrate this. You want to know something that would be countercultural? A group of people who are content with what they have. Wow. A group of people who are generous with one another, 
who who care for not just the spiritual needs of one another, but the physical needs of one another. And I love uh, uh, in Judges, it's the only other use of um, this word, strengthens. You know, when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the only other use of this word is when it says the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon when he went to defeat God's enemies. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. That's that same word when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so that's what we can desire today, is being clothed with the very strength of God, which is by his Spirit through Christ. So let's pray. Oh, dear Father, you're so good. You're so good. We are your children. Uh, we are grateful to be your children. Lord, we, we declare your goodness in general because of giving us life, giving us this beautiful world, but also because of what you've done in Christ in unlocking eternity, unlocking reconciliation with you, unlocking the most important thing we could ever need, which is knowing you, being close with you, being on the same page as you, being called by you, being appointed by you, being, being empowered by you to be your body here on this earth, to be your hands and feet to a hurting and watching world, to demonstrate your loving care for one another so that a watching world can, can say, whoa, that's different. I want that. How are you so content? Even though you're in need, how are you so content? I have Jesus. I go where he wants me to go, period. So, Lord, we pray for your spirit to strengthen us according to wherever you want us to be. If you want us to be in a place of hunger, we'll go there with you. If you want us to be in a place of being well-fed, we will go there with you. We want to go where you want us to go because you dictate our needs and you care for our needs. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so communion is set. Every week we remember that the thing,